Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch. I want to thank uh, those of you who've been listening and subscribing, especially uh, the ones who've taken the time to write a review and leave a five-star rating. That really does help, so thanks for doing that. I was told this week that uh, we got all the way up to 63rd most popular religious podcast in America. Uh, only a few hundred thousand more subscribers until we catch up to Joel Osteen. Coming for you, Joel. Uh, I was actually told uh, that we were 48th most popular uh, in the United Kingdom, so apparently the Brits are into this, which is fun. Uh, today I want to talk about what I think has risen to become the number one objection to the Christian faith in our time. The work of public theology is both proactive and reactive. It is arguing for the Christian perspective in the public square, but it's also answering the objections that come from the public square. And if we don't do a good job of answering these public questions, then we should not expect the Christian perspective to even be a plausible option within the public dialogue. If their questions about our worldview are simply dismissed by us, then our worldview is easily dismissed by them. And so I wanted to take up what I believe has become the most pressing question in our day, which is the exclusiveness of the Christian faith. I was talking recently to someone who ministers to youth, and he told me that without a doubt, the biggest stumbling block to the Christian faith among the rising generation is its exclusive nature. It's this idea that Jesus is exclusively right and true and everything else is therefore wrong and false. Uh, that line of reasoning is anathema to our culture today. And of course it is. Objections to Christianity always rise from greater cultural movements. So when we were a culture of objective uh, truth, objective morality, right and wrong, false or true, uh, logical argumentation, and so forth, the notion of an exclusive truth claim was not a problem. In fact, it was kind of just assumed, of course you believe you're right and others are wrong. That's, that's what it means to believe something. That's the very nature of belief. That's the risk of belief. And we all have to take that risk with what we believe. But now we are, and when I say we, I, I'm speaking mostly of the Western context. Um, outside Europe and America, this is not the case. Uh, but we in the West inhabit a culture of postmodern relativism, where truth is not objective but subjective. Meaning, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, and I have no right to tell you that my truth should be your truth. So in essence, the only claims that are considered plausible in our world are claims that pass what I call the inclusive test. The moment a claim becomes exclusive, that claim is dismissed. And so here's Christianity with its audacious exclusivity. Uh, the passage I'm preaching on this Sunday is uh, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. No salvation apart from Jesus Christ. He is the only name by which humanity can be saved. 
That claim in our world is a ridiculous claim that cannot possibly be taken seriously. And therefore, Christianity cannot be taken seriously in the public square. If you want to believe that that intolerant nonsense in your private life, sure, have at it. But in the common public sphere, the only ideas worth considering are the ones that are tolerant and inclusive of all perspectives. So that's the cultural situation we find ourselves in. What's, what's my response? I want to offer both a critique and a defense. A critique of the notion of inclusive truth and then a defense of exclusive truth, particularly uh, Jesus as the exclusive truth. Let's begin with a brief critique of this common notion of inclusivity. Now, first let me say that I truly do sympathize with the heart behind it because truth be told, uh, so much harm has been done in the name of exclusive truth claims. Human history has proven that when people are convinced that they are right and others are wrong, it doesn't typically go well. And I will not deny that Christians have played their part in the ugly history of exclusive truth. And so the 21st century reaction is to do away with it altogether. If people would just lay down their exclusive truths, accept other people's beliefs, we would all be much better off. Now, on the surface, that sounds so right and good, but in the end, it proves just as intolerant as any other worldview. Let me explain. Uh, As many philosophers have pointed out, subjective truth is itself an objective truth. Leslie Newbigin famously demonstrated this point in his book, um, hugely important book, uh, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He recounts that age-old tale that maybe you've heard before of of, of blind men and the elephant. It's this famous illustration that Uh, for a long time was used to describe how all religious truth claims are equally true and I, I suppose somewhat false as well. The idea is you have blind men groping an elephant. The first guy exclaims, it's a tree, because he's touching the elephant's leg. The second says, it's a snake, because he's holding the trunk. And so the parable goes on with person after person believing that they have discovered the truth when in fact They are all true and all wrong in one sense. But Newbegin points out the obvious dilemma of the parable. It only reinforces what it's trying to disprove. You see, it's told from the perspective of someone with sight who knows the actual truth, who knows that these blind men are in reality grabbing parts of an elephant. It assumes that we see something that all these poor blind people cannot see. We see the real truth and they don't see it. We see that they are all in fact both wrong and right in their estimation. And this is the dilemma of Western tolerance. To say nobody should be allowed to have an exclusive truth is itself an exclusive truth. When a culture tells us that we should not believe that we are right and others are wrong, Our culture is telling us that it is right and we are wrong. Any culture or government or institution or even an individual for that matter 
that attempts to prevent others from imposing their exclusive beliefs is itself imposing exclusive beliefs. Do you see? Ironically, the narrative of acceptance has become a militant narrative. Perhaps nobody is proselytizing more these days than those who want to see an end to proselytizing. This is most apparent on our universities. I would argue that the least diverse space in America is now the college campus. While these institutions have worked tirelessly over the past decades to cultivate um, ethnic and economic diversity, they have perhaps unwittingly become the most homogenous spaces in our culture. People who look different, but think completely consistent. And the consistency is marked by militancy, a militant inclusiveness that excludes any countering worldview. I just read on the news that uh, Duke University has banned Young Life Ministries from their campus because of what? Because of their views. And religious culture has likewise joined in. I drove by a, uh, I drove by a local church here in town, and out front was a big sign saying, All faiths, all beliefs, all are welcome, no matter what. And the cynic in me couldn't help but wonder, really? Would I be welcome there? Would I, as someone who takes the passage that I'm preaching this week in Acts 4.12, takes that salvation is found in no one else, no other name but the name of Jesus, as someone who takes that and believes that verse is both true and wants to convert you to its truth, would I be welcomed within their welcoming community? The answer, of course, is no. Such an exclusive proclamation would not be tolerated very long within their tolerant space. But here's the thing. I don't blame them. That's what they believe, and they are passionate about what they believe. I went to their website to look at their statement of faith, and it says this, we are a place that does not subscribe to a creed. You know what that sounds like to me? A creed. We are a place that does not subscribe to a creed is itself a creed. Here's the point. Exclusive truth claims are inevitable and unavoidable. The answer is not to naively try to avoid them. The answer is to answer the question of all questions. Which exclusive truth is true? The answer is the arena of ideas, my friends. Where we charitably engage, debate, listen, and yes, try to persuade. And then at the end of the day, we all must assume the inevitable risk of exclusive truth, meaning we hold our convictions with the risk that we could, in fact, be wrong. Even the postmodern conviction that there is no wrong, only right, even that bears the risk that it itself could be wrong. So that's my critique of the attempt to do away with exclusive truth. Now, now that we know it's unavoidable, allow me to defend why I believe Jesus, and by extension, the worldview that he establishes, is actually true. Yes, I say exclusively true. In one sense, the question of truth 
is an incredibly daunting task, perhaps even impossible in your mind, particularly when it comes to the greater questions of life, meaning it's one thing to say two plus two equals four, but what do we do with questions like, is there a God? If so, whose version of God is true? What is the meaning and purpose of life? What happens after we die? How can we possibly answer these questions? Including the ever more popular secular answer that these questions are pointless and unanswerable. How can we possibly know which truth claim is actually true? Well, here's where I find Jesus of Nazareth utterly compelling. He didn't just make extraordinary truth claims. He vindicated those claims with an extraordinary act. He promised that he would do something so spectacular, so unique, so definitive, so unavoidable, something that this world has never seen such that the world could forever know that his truth is true. He said that he would rise from his own death and that his resurrection would be his vindication. Again, we are currently studying the book of Acts at our church, and it doesn't take a scholar reading that book to see how this thing called Christianity took off. Unlike other religions and worldviews, it wasn't a group of followers that got convinced that their prophet or their leader or teacher was telling the truth. And then they themselves started espousing that truth, and it spread, and uh, the movement was born. In fact, the opposite happened when it comes to Christianity. When Jesus was crucified, they were convinced he was a fraud. He was a lie. But then something happened that changed them and the world forever. Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus was viewed as heaven's great truth claim. The ultimate declaration of absolute truth. The, the truest epistemology, you could say, meaning, meaning the true starting point, the true way of viewing everything, knowledge, history, existence, meaning, life, all of it now has a new foundation, Jesus, who is risen from the dead. And I think we all have to agree that if it did indeed happen, as improbable and unthinkable as that may be to you, if indeed he rose, then he is true. So did he rise? I'm not going to take the time to argue for the historicity and reality of the resurrection here. I've done so before, and those are online. Uh, you can search uh, for two sermons that I've preached. One is called Believing the Unbelievable, and the other is called You Can't Make This Stuff Up. So Believing the Unbelievable, You Can't Make This Stuff Up. You can uh, search for those on our website, find them, listen for yourself, and hear my arguments. But yes, I am convinced and I believe an unbiased evaluation of history would agree that Jesus is risen from the dead, and therefore Jesus is exclusively true. And for the purposes of this podcast, if Jesus is true, then a Jesus worldview is likewise true. But I don't want the defense to just end here, as if to say, Jesus is true, deal with it. Instead, I want us to consider how good it is that Jesus is true. Meaning, I, do, I don't want to just defend Jesus. I want to commend him. I want to ask that you cut through all the baggage that you have with the followers of Jesus. 
I know we do a really poor job of representing him. Uh, we try, but admittedly, we make a mess of his representation. But look past all of that and look only to him. Consider Jesus himself. Uh, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and ask yourself one question. Is this not what you want to be true? Do you not want diseases healed? Do you not want outcasts befriended? Do you not want the shameful esteemed? Do you not want religious arrogance to be rebuked? Do you not want justice delivered, mercy extended, pride humiliated, humility exalted, sins forgiven? And ultimately, do you not want love to triumph and hope to have the final say? Look at Jesus and ask, is this not what you want to be true? I believe that deep down in the core of our very being, we all long for Jesus to be true. I believe that because I believe Jesus is true and that Jesus designed us with this longing for, for him and what he represents. Well, my contention is that you don't have to give up on those longings. He is risen and he is true. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is true. And if Jesus is true, then everything we want to be true will one day be exclusively true. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you back next week for another episode of Every Square Inch. Thank you.